Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who have longed for his appearing. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. All right, good afternoon. If you're joining us for the first time, my name is Aaron. Uh, I get the privilege of serving as one of the pastors uh, at Exilic. And uh, if you're joining us for the first time, we're actually winding down a collection of sermons uh, that we've been doing over the past few months called From Embers to a Flame. And the reason why we're doing this sermon series is because sometimes with our relationship with God, it can often feel like it's, it's cooled down to an ember. So I don't know if you've ever been in a romantic relationship before, uh, but sometimes you can feel like the sparks are gone and, and your, your relationship had, with them is like an ember now. And so the question is, how do you get the sparks going again? How do you fan that thing back into a flame? And so that's why we're taking a look at Paul's uh, letter to his protege, Timothy, because he's trying to help Timothy stoke that fire bigger and bigger uh, for God. Uh, and if we want to understand the, the full weight and the punch of Paul's words that he's saying to his protege, Timothy, we first have to understand the context or the setting in which this letter uh, is being written to Timothy. And so many scholars believe, if we can pull up this picture, that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to Timothy uh, from the infamous Mamertine prison, which dates all the way back to the 7th century BC. And if you go to Rome, you can still see this prison to this day. This prison uh, had two chambers that were underground, uh, and the only way to get into the chamber was through that hole that you see on the roof. Uh, Scholars believe that you could squeeze up to 47 people into one of these chambers uh, if you squeeze them in like sardines in a can. But keep in mind that there were no toilets, no showers, no sinks uh, in these chambers. So you can imagine the the putrid smell of urine and feces that would emanate from within the walls uh, and the floors of this prison. The bottom chamber in particular, where there was even less light, and less ventilation. Being lowered into that bottom chamber, some scholars describe as being lowered into the depths of hell itself because of the smell and the darkness that was there. And this is the context in which Paul writes his final letter, his last words to his protege, Timothy. And you should listen to a man's final words because chances are they will probably be one of the most important words they ever say in their, in their life. Because when a person is about to die, that's when people get very, very honest and their true colors begin to show. The last thing that the prolific and very witty writer Christopher Hitchens wrote as he was dying of cancer was his book, Mortality. And this is what Hitchens writes. I love the imagery of struggle. I sometimes wish I were suffering in a good cause or risking my life for the good of others instead of just being a gravely endangered patient. To the dumb question, why me? 
The cosmos barely bothers to return the reply. Why not? These were Christopher Hitchens. This was the final thing that he wrote uh, before he died of cancer. And I want to contrast what Hitchens wrote with Paul's last words before he died in verse 7, where he writes, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. See the, do you see the distinction between the final words that Hitchens writes and the final words that the Apostle Paul writes? And I like, the, I like how it's parsed out in the Greek because Paul actually writes the object first, and he says, the good fight I have fought, the race I have finished, the faith I have kept. This is what Paul says, and this is my hope uh, for every single one of us. But my question to you today is, if you had the courage, if you had the bravery uh, to, to imagine this thought experiment, if you knew that you were just hours, if not days, away from your impending death, what do you think your final words would be? Now, it takes a little bravery and a little bit of courage to even think about something like that. But what do you think your final words would be? And my hope for every one of us as we depart here later on today is that we too can one, one day have etched on our tombstones that we too have fought the good fight, we have finished the race, and we have kept uh, the faith. And to help us understand what Paul meant by these three things, he looks at three directions. He not only looks forward, but he looks backward, and he looks upward as well. So first he looks forward. In verse 6, this is what Paul writes. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. Paul knows that he's days, if not hours, away from his execution and beheading under Emperor Nero. Uh, ancient prisons back then were not like prisons today where you could be sentenced for up to life. Ancient prisons were just temporary holding places where you stayed for days or hours prior to going on to death row. So they were just temporary places. So Paul knew that the time for his departure was near. A lot of you will be departing for somewhere for the holidays, right? Whether it's uh, to your home home or traveling elsewhere. And similarly, Paul knew that the time for his departure was near, that it was coming. But unlike Christopher Hitchens, who believed that the, his departure was essentially into a sea of non-existence forever and ever, the Apostle Paul believed that his departure was to a heavenly destination. And because he knew that he was departing for heaven, it radically changed how he lived on earth. And so being a good Jewish uh, person, he compares his life to a drink offering. Now that, that's sort of a, uh, you know, what, what does a drink offering even mean for us? And so if we want to understand what a drink offering is, we first have to understand what a burnt offering is. And there's, here's a picture of what a burnt offering looked like. So a burnt offering is where a priest would basically barbecue a whole animal. And they would do that uh, because they would take this innocent victim, like an animal, and the animal would be sacrificed to atone and to assuage the guilt and the sin of people. And after that whole animal was barbecued or that burnt offering took place, the priest would also take a goblet of wine 
and the priest would pour the wine at the base of the altar or on the animal itself. And what Paul is saying here is that as he looks, as he as he as he looks at his life, his life is like is is poured out for God and for others, but now there were only a few drops left with the life that he was about to live. So he not only looks forward to his departure, but after that he looks backward. And in verse 7 he writes this, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. And for our time here, I just want to just chew on these three phrases for a moment. What does Paul mean when he says he has fought the good fight, he has finished the race, and he has kept the faith? Because it's very possible for you uh, not to fight the right fights, but to fight the wrong fights. Not to finish the race, but to run the wrong race. And not to keep the faith, but to actually lose the faith. So what does Paul mean here when he says these three things? I just want to chew on these three things for a moment. The first thing that he says is he has fought the good fight. The Greek word here for fight is the word agonizomai. And you don't have to be a Greek scholar to know that the word agonizomai sounds like the word agony. And so what Paul is saying here is he has agonized the good agony. He has struggled the good struggle. He has fought uh, the good fight. Now, the question that we have to ask ourselves is what, what does a good fight look like? Uh, and I don't know if you've ever experienced this or not, but I have. But sometimes uh, you get into a heavy disagreement with someone, like your roommates or a spouse or, or a coworker. You get into this heavy disagreement with someone, and you're like, why are we even fighting? I don't even remember what we're fighting about. Has that ever happened to you? What's that an example of fighting the wrong kinds of fight, right? Uh, Twitter the part of I mean, Twitter is great, but part of the reason why it's also very toxic is because it's a lot of people fighting the wrong kinds of fight, right? People dying on a hill that they should not be uh, dying on. So what is worth agonizing over then? What is worth actually fighting over and struggling over? When Ephesians 6, Paul says this, for our struggle is not against or our agony or our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is what we're supposed to be struggling against, fighting against, and agonizing against. And whenever we read a verse like Ephesians 6, part of the reason why it goes right over your heads, or it's very hard to, to understand uh, f- with our modern, urban, sophisticated sensibilities, is because when we watch movies, the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil often come cloaked like Voldemort or Thanos or like Darth Vader, and that's what evil is, right? So when we read verses like this, that's what we think, but in reality, that's not what we see. And so when we read a verse like this, it's very hard for us to grasp, but the truth of the matter is we do feel the dark powers of this world and the spiritual forces of evil, don't we? Sometimes... The dark powers of this world and and the spiritual forces of evil are felt in our broken systems that marginalize and oppress certain kinds of people. Sometimes the dark powers of this world or spiritual forces of evil are heavily felt in the dark alleyways of Bangkok or here in our city. And sometimes the dark powers of this world 
and the spiritual forces of evil are also very tangibly felt with the hurt and the pain that are inflicted on our lives from other people. And this is how, this is how it can manifest itself, right? Uh, sometimes the dark powers of this world are, fe- are felt in the persecuted church in China or in North Korea. So the spiritual forces of evil manifest itself in different ways, but darkness and evil is not just a thing that is outside in our world, but you also have to understand it's something that is also within our hearts and within our minds. So let me give you an example of this. 20 years ago, uh, Pink wrote a very popular song called Don't Let Me Get Me. And this is what she writes. Every day I fight a war or I agonize or I struggle against the mirror. I can't take the person staring back at me. I'm a hazard to myself. Don't let me get me. I'm my own worst enemy. It's bad when you annoy yourself. So irritating. Don't want to be my friend no more. I want to be somebody else. LA told me you'll be a pop star. All you have to do is change everything you are. Tired of being compared to Britney Spears. She's so pretty. That just ain't me. So doctor, doctor, won't you please prescribe me something a day in the life of someone else? And what Pink is talking about here is a type of agony, a struggle, a fight that she has with these evil thoughts that are penetrating and invading her, her mind. And so she's wrestling with, with this, and she's, she's struggling with this game that you can never win. And you know what that game is? The comparison game. Anytime you play the comparison game, you are never the winner. You are always the loser. And this is what she's agonizing over. So what does it look like then to fight the good fight? You know what it looks like? It looks like fighting to get these kinds of thoughts of self-hatred out of your mind. It looks like fighting to get rid of the cultural expectations that are imposed on you via ads, social media, movies, shows, music that you listen to. It means fighting to get rid of those thoughts. It means fighting to get rid of the, the trauma that you face when your parents told you, if you just lost a few pounds, then you could finally get married. That's what fighting the good fight is, fighting to get those things out of your head and fighting for things like understanding that you are actually beautiful because you are made in the image of God, that you are a son and daughter of God, that beauty is relative, and this is the only thing that matters as far as the core of your identity. It means fighting for, Philippians 4, as Paul would say, to fight, to, to think about whatever is true, lovely, beautiful, admirable, praiseworthy, trustworthy, to think about those kinds of things instead of of thinking about these kinds of things where you are conquered and enslaved by those thoughts. So that's what it looks like to fight the good fight, to fight for holiness and faithfulness. For others of us, it looks like fighting against gravitating towards a very cushy, uncomfortable life. And fighting to deny yourself, take up your cross daily and following him. For others of us, it looks like decentering our children from being the center of our lives. The one idol, our kids, that the church would not even touch. Instead of making our kids the center of our lives, we make Christ the center of their lives. These, these are the things that we have to fight against crashing down to smithereens, the idols that are erected in our hearts and in our lives, and fighting to ultimately live uh, for him, 
rather than being conquered by that. But Paul not only says he has fought the good fight, but he also says that he has finished the race. You know, oftentimes we not only fight the wrong battles, but oftentimes we can run the wrong race. And I'll give you an example of this. Um, one of my favorite shows uh, growing up that I actually saw live every week was Friends. And my wife is like the commander-in-chief of the, the Friends Army. She actually has competed in Friends trivia uh, contests at bars. Um, but one of my favorite shows growing up was Friends, and, and many of you know that Matthew Perry plays the character Chandler Bing. What you might not know is that Chandler Bing, uh, in real life, uh, actually struggled with very, very, various forms of addiction. Uh, and at one point, or at multiple points, he ha had a very close encounter uh, with death. And in his new autobiography, which is chock full of spiritual insights that you'll hear about today and next week, um, Perry, uh, in his new book, Friends, Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing, he writes this. I found myself getting to my knees, closing my eyes and praying. I had never done this before. God, you can do whatever you want with me. Just please make me famous. Three weeks later, I got cast in Friends, and God has certainly kept his side of the bargain. But the Almighty being the Almighty had not forgotten the first part of that prayer as well, which is you can do whatever you want with me. Now, all these years later, I'm certain that I got famous, so I would not waste my entire life trying to get famous. You have to get famous to know that that's not the answer. I was a kid from Canada who had all his dreams come true. They were just the wrong dreams. And so what Perry is talking about is that it's very easy for us not to run the right race, but to run the wrong race. And to put this more into a New York City-fied context, it's very possible for you to run the wrong race. In fact, it's very possible for you that the only race that you might be running on right now is a rat race, and the only ladder that you're concerned about climbing is the corporate ladder, as high and as fast as possible. But what Perry is saying here is that if you run the wrong race, you climb the wrong ladder, they will not satiate or fulfill the giant, vacuous abyss that is inside of your heart which is why he now considers himself a seeker of God. And if you ask me, he's borderline Christian when you read his book. D.L. Moody says, our greatest fear should not be the fear of failure, but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. And so here's how you know that you're running the right race. You know you're running the right race when you seek first his kingdom, not second, not third, not forth to your own empire and kingdom, but you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Perry knew that he was chasing after the wrong dreams when he knew that money, fame, and all those things, notoriety wouldn't give him what he was ultimately looking for. And my question is, do you? As you think about your day-to-day -day life, friends, what are you pursuing? Honestly, what are you chasing after? What race are you running? What is your goal and the thing that you're ultimately running towards? Paul not only fights the good fight and finishes the race, but lastly, he says that he has kept the faith. And whether he's talking about his own personal faith or the faith, as in the gospel, both kind of work here. But the point is, Paul doesn't lose his faith, but he 
keeps his faith. Okay. You know, one of the things that I love about our church is that um, uh, it's a diversity of spiritual stories in our church with people on various stages of their journey, right? So typically, there are four demographics of people at Exilic. The first are those that are like seekers and skeptics that are investigating the claims of Christianity. Almost every Sunday, I'll talk with people that are trying to figure out like whether this whole like Jesus thing is credible and legitimate or not. So we have a good amount of people that are investigating the claims of Christianity, and I want you to know if that's, if that's you, uh, you are at the right place. But second, the demographic we have are those like Steve who have just made a profession of faith and have just gotten baptized. And, and Steve's story is crazy in particular because in just a little over a year, he has gone from a person that had never gone to church before in his life to now someone that is making a profession of faith, which is crazy. The third demographic perhaps one of the largest demographics in our church are those that grew up in the church and have received an inherited faith from your parents or grandparents. But now that you're older, you're wondering if your inherited faith is really your own faith. So you're going through a journey of deconstruction, which is not a bad thing at all. Okay? And then the last demographic, the fourth demographic, are those that are cemented in their faith and they'll die for this thing if they have to, because they believe in it so much. And so those are the four demographics in our church. And to the third demographic, I want to speak to and encourage in particular. There are times in our life where we do need to deconstruct certain aspects of our faith. But just because you deconstruct certain aspects of your faith, it doesn't mean that you have to demolish the whole thing. So for example, when we move to our space sometime next month, Right now, we're doing a gut renovation, okay? So we're tearing things down to build stuff up. We're deconstructing things to reconstruct things. But just because we're tearing some things down, it doesn't mean we have to tear the whole thing down, including the foundation itself. Just because you deconstruct, it doesn't mean that you have to demolish. And so if you're going through a period of deconstruction, which is not a bad thing at all, do it for the sake of reconstructing, not for the sake of deconstructing or demolishing the whole thing. If there was one person who had the right to demolish his faith, it was the Apostle Paul. He went from being a member of the upper class intelligentsia and respected by everyone in his society to now being a homeless man that was about to die and be beheaded. If there was any person that had the right to abandon his faith and not to keep his faith but to lose his faith, it was the Apostle Paul. But he kept his faith. He didn't lose his faith. And the reason why he kept it, even though his situation was terrible, is because he not only looked forward to his heavenly destination, backward at the life that he lived, but he also looked forward to his award. And if you take a look at verse 8, Paul writes this. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to you, to all who have longed for his appearing. You know what? When I was uh, prepping uh, the sermon this week, uh, my youngest daughter Hayden was uh, playing with her magnet tiles right next to me. And if you don't know what magnet tiles are, they're like, kind of like Legos, but they're magnetic. And so she's like building something. And so I'm like typing away. And she's like, Daddy, look, look, look. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's great, honey. That's great. 
five minutes later, Daddy, look, look at all the rooms. I'm like, oh, that's great, Hayden. That's so good. Keep doing it. And then another five minutes later, Daddy, look, look how tall it, tall it is. I'm like, okay, that's good. I have to get back to work. What was she doing? She was looking for validation. She was looking for affirmation. She was looking for an award. She was looking for a thumbs up from somebody else. And you know what? If I'm very honest with myself, there is a four-year-old child inside of me too. Do you know that every time I preach, I'm secretly hoping that after the sermon, you will come up to me and say, that was such a good sermon. You knocked me off my seat. I'm so convicted. My life has drastically changed. I'm still looking for approval, affirmation. You know that when you post something on social, you are secretly looking for likes and hearts and other kinds of emojis. And when you get them, you feel so, so validated and approved. Now, why do, we, why do you feel like that? It's because at the end of the day, you cannot validate yourself. You can look in the mirror all you want and say, you are awesome. But when somebody else says, you're awesome, it means so much more, particularly if you actually respect that person. You cannot validate or affirm yourself. And what Paul is saying here is this. When we, when we fight the good fight, when we finish the race, when we keep the faith, there is an award, a thumbs up, a validation from God, not your digital community, from God that he gives to you. And this crown that he crowns you with is not a physical crown, but it's a crown of righteousness that you get to wear even though you have not lived a righteous life like me. I haven't lived a righteous life either. But he re the reason why he crowns us with his righteousness, even though we've fought the wrong fights, we've run the wrong race, and at times we have lost our faith. But the reason why he crowns you like this is because Jesus wore a crown of thorns for us. The reason why he validates us and even awards us is because Jesus Christ was the ultimate burnt offering. He was the ultimate drink offering who was poured out on our behalf. When Jesus died on the cross, he was speared and blood and water was poured out for us, for the remission of all of our sins. And when you understand that you are crowned like that and awarded like that, it does something to you psychologically. All of a sudden, you don't care about winning arguments, especially stupid ones that you should not be fighting. You just don't care anymore. And you begin to fight the right battles, not the wrong ones. When you realize that this is how God looks at you, you don't care about running all the other races, climbing all those other ladders. It doesn't matter as much anymore. And when you realize that this is how God crowns you, even when life gets tough, you don't lose your faith. You keep it like a running back tucking in his football, not wanting to fumble it or lose it. You keep the gospel tucked in no matter what comes your way. 
because of the way that he looks at you and validates you, affirms you, and approves you, and crowns you with his righteousness. So here is Paul, moments away from his death. Some scholars believe he was around 58 years old. Former member of the upper class, intellectual elite, now dying as a homeless man in the Mamertine prison, about to be beheaded. And I promise you, when other people look at his life, probably a much scrawnier, dirtier, uh, half version of himself, I promise you that the outside world looked at him and said, he fought the wrong fight. Dude ran the wrong race. Dude should have lost his faith, not kept his faith. But because Paul looks forward, back at his life, and upward, there's a sense of fulfillment and satisfaction that, no, I've actually fought the right fight, the good fight. I've run the right race, and I will keep this faith no matter what you do to me. And my hope is that one day you can say that with your life, too. That at the end of the day, etched on your tombstone, too, will be, I fought the good fight. I've run the right race and finished it. And I've kept, kept this faith at all costs. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, there are, um, you know, as we, as we step out of here, and e- even as we think about the holidays, there are so many distractions and things that are pulling us in all sorts of different directions. So easy to lose our way. Lord, would you be our true north, as our brother Steve said, and guide us in the right directions that we ought to go. Help us to learn from the cautionary tales of others and help us to learn from people like Paul and most of all your son, Jesus, who went before us to fight for us, who on the cross said, it is finished, and who kept the faith. And is our prayer that we will follow uh, you to our dying breath. In your name I pray, amen.